The January 6th House Committee is expected to present new evidence today about former President Trump's role in the attack on the Capitol. It's Thursday, October 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. WBUR and NPR will have live coverage and analysis of today's hearing beginning at 1. Coming up this hour, the Massachusetts ballot question to raise taxes on incomes over a million dollars. Supporters say it would narrow the income gap. Opponents call it unfair. Why am I being penalized for having done the right thing? For having worked very hard, conserved, saved. And? So now I'm eating canned tuna or a piece of chicken that I bought when it was on sale the struggle some retirees are having with inflation. In sports, the Bruins win their season opener, cloudy with rain this afternoon and evening in the 70s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol returns to the public stage today. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports. Committee aides say the panel will present new testimony from witnesses, some who have featured in previous hearings, along with some new voices. The committee will also present new evidence, including information gleaned from the hundreds of thousands of pages that the U.S. Secret Service turned over after the committee issued a subpoena in July. Aides wouldn't say whether this will be the final hearing for the committee and stressed its investigation is ongoing. The committee is tasked with producing a full report on the violent attempt to block the certification of Joe Biden's election victory and then President Donald Trump's role in stoking the riot. Barbara Sprint, NPR News. Washington. The federal trial continues of the founder of the far-right Oath Keepers group and four others on charges linked to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yesterday, a group member showed the jury an assault-style rifle he said was part of a cache of weapons he saw in a hotel room the day before the attack. The defendants are accused of plotting to use force to keep then-President Trump in power. The defendants' lawyers argue prosecutors have mischaracterized the goals of the group. A majority of U.S. CEOs say they're preparing for a recession. That's according to a new survey from the conference board. As NPR's David Gura reports, CEO confidence has not been this low since 2008, but this isn't shaping up to be a repeat of the Great Recession. 98% of CEOs who responded to the conference board's quarterly survey said they're preparing for a recession in the United States in the next 12 to 18 months. Steve Odland runs the business trade group. You've got a situation where you have unanimity of, uh, of opinion here that we're going to have a recession. But most CEOs expect a recession that won't be long-lasting, and that's because parts of the U.S. economy remain so strong. People have jobs, they're still spending, and most of them are not overextended. And almost half the CEOs said they expect to hire new workers and raise pay in the next year. David Gura, NPR News, New York. A jury in Connecticut has ordered conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay nearly $1 billion for his lies involving the Sandy Hook school shooting. He claimed it was a hoax. The victim's relatives and an FBI agent who sued him say Jones's followers have harassed them and even sent them death threats. The lawyer for the families, Chris Matei, says Alex Jones is trying to profit off the tragedies of other people. Since 9-11, he's been, he's been walking in the shadow of death to try to profit from the backs of people who have just been devastated and uprooted. That is not a business model that should be sustainable in the United States of America. Lawyers for Alex Jones say they plan to appeal the verdict. On Wall Street before the open, Dow futures are higher. 
You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The two major party candidates for governor of Massachusetts met in their first debate last night. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports that Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal clashed over the economy, abortion rights, and Donald Trump. Healy wasted no time before tying Deal to Donald Trump, who remains deeply unpopular in Massachusetts. This is really clear in this election. My opponent is Donald Trump's candidate for governor. Healy returned to that attack several times, accusing Deal of opposing abortion rights and wanting to bring Trumpism to Massachusetts. Deal presented himself as a fiscal conservative who supports parental rights and law and order and sought to tie Healy to high inflation, rising energy prices, and President Biden. Joe Biden, the person that you supported, is leaving us right now in an economic disaster just two years into the job. The two will debate again on October 20th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. We should note that debate was hosted last night by NBC Boston, Telemundo Boston, and NECN. Unionized grad students at Clark University have unanimously approved their first contract. They went on strike earlier this month. Union organizers say the new contract includes wage increases and improved health care benefits. Boston police have identified the 14-year-old killed in Roxbury on Monday. Rosante Osario died in the shooting. Another boy was shot and injured. No arrests have been made. Three people from Massachusetts are recipient of this year's MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. That's better known as the Genius Grant. Melanie Matchett Wood is a mathematician at Harvard. Dana Friedman is a chemist at MIT. And Karen Brown tells us about Loretta Ross, a professor at Smith College. Ross helped start the reproductive justice movement, which focuses on racial inequality around the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and to bring up children safely. Ross also works to make public discourse less divisive. She uses the phrase calling in to counter the tendency of people to call out those who may otherwise share their values, as she explained in 2019. Calling in is holding people accountable for things that they do that are problematic, but doing it in a way that is healing versus punishing. Each of this year's 25 MacArthur Fellows receive $800,000 to spend as they wish. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Bruins won their first game of the season. They beat the Capitals 5-2 last night in Washington. The Bees' next game is Saturday at home against the Arizona Coyotes. In your forecast, cloudy to start the day, then a chance for rain and strong winds by the afternoon. High today in the lower 70s. Rain, gusty winds, and possibly a thunderstorm overnight. Low around 60. The rain clears out tomorrow morning. It'll be cloudy in the afternoon with a high near 70. Dry for the weekend. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies, dataiku.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. 
Today may be the final hearing from the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Yeah, the committee plans to share new evidence and new testimony that sums up its case for the nation, a case that places blame for the attack squarely on former President Trump. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now with a preview of today's hearing. Good morning, Deirdre. Good morning, Layla. Okay, so the committee's promising new evidence. Any hint of, of what that could be? Well, aides to the panel stressed that there would be new information. We know we're not going to hear from live witnesses today, okay. but the panel is going to show some taped testimony from witnesses who haven't been featured in any of the eight public hearings this year. They haven't named names, but we know the panel has been meeting with witnesses in closed-door depositions and getting a lot more documents over the last few weeks. Last month, they met with Ginny Thomas. She's a Republican activist who's also the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She was communicating with John Eastman, one of the former President Trump's outside legal advisors, who was pushing this plan to overturn the 2020 election results. We could hear today some detail about what she told the committee in her hours-long testimony. Another area where we expect to see some new information today is related to what members of the Secret Service saw and heard on January 6th. The panel has got hundreds of thousands of pages of evidence over the summer after sending the agency a subpoena in July. Remember, there was very dramatic testimony this summer about an angry Trump lunging for a member of his detail after agents refused his demand to be driven to the Capitol the morning of January 6th as his supporters were prepping to march there from a rally near the White House. Now, this obviously centers around the former president, but the panel never actually interviewed the former president. Should we expect to hear more about Trump and his role? Well, the committee is saying there's going to be a focus today on the former president's state of mind. But as you noted, they haven't talked to him directly. We're likely to hear more from testimony from senior White House aides who have cooperated with the committee. Here's what committee member Zoe Lofgren of California told CNN earlier this week about what they would flesh out. What the president's intentions were, what he knew, what he did. Another person that the panel hasn't talked to is former Vice President Mike Pence. He did signal at one point he might be willing to appear, but members of the committee now admit those close to Pence pushed back on that, so they don't have any new firsthand information from him. Now, the last few hearings have focused on kind of specific themes, right? The pressure on Vice President Pence, right. the efforts to install supporters at the Justice Department. Is there a theme today? Today is really expected to be more of a step back, according okay. to aides. We're going to hear from the chair, Benny Thompson, the ranking member, Liz Cheney, but also the seven other committee members are all going to present evidence of the whole timeline of the events leading up to the attack on that day and after. We're going to see a synthesis of some of the evidence that's already presented in prior hearings. They're not calling this their closing argument. But this panel expires at the end of the year, so they realize there isn't really a lot more time to show what they've learned in their investigation. This is really basically their last chance to make their case about the former president's central role in inciting the riot at the Capitol. One other thing they want to do is emphasize the ongoing threats to democracy. Now, very quickly, now what after all this investigations, all these hearings? Right. Well, the committee is writing a report that's going to be out by the end of the year. But really, the action has already shifted from Capitol Hill to the Justice Department in the last few months. We've learned more about what they're learning in their investigation, and we're awaiting information about any new charges they could possibly bring against the former president or those close to him. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks, Layla. 
All right, we're joined now by former Republican Congressman Denver, Denver Riggleman of Virginia. He's a former military intelligence officer who served for eight months as a senior advisor to the January 6th committee. And he's written about that in his book, The Breach, The Untold Story of the Investigation into January 6th. Congressman, what new evidence do you think the committee could show us today? Well, you talked about the service text, which I think are going to be very important. You know, some individual the other day told me, well, they don't have the text on the 5th or 6th. But even before that or after that, it could be very important with what the Secret Service was talking about. But I also think it's going to be a summation from the first hearings to these hearings. And I do believe with everything else you heard, you know, on the prior newscast, when you're talking about some of the things they're going to be looking at in new testimony, I also don't want people to forget about Roger Stone in the Danish documentary and what he was saying about violence that day. So I expect to see also more links between the White House or people around Trump and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. And those texts, that's where we could find out a lot more about Ginny Thomas's role? Well, you know, let me tell you, Ginny Thomas, one of the things that really interests me about Ginny Thomas is we talked about, and I heard you know, about her contacts with John Eastman, but I think it's even more important that of her direct contact with Mark Meadows and the fact that she was working with congressional offices and also mentioned that she was in contact with Jared Kushner. So you're talking about an individual married to a Supreme Court justice who had incredible access uh, to every part of government. And I think her text, I believe, were the most important in the Meadows text messages because they indicated the saturation of conspiracy theories and, and really QAnon throughout the entire GOP of quote unquote elite right, and how they were using that to direct policy and to direct a strategy to overturn the election. And Ginny Thomas did wind up being interviewed by the committee about those text messages uh, with the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. What could they have learned from her? Well, I hope that they asked some pretty probing questions about how often she talked with Jared. Um, did she work with uh, Louis Gohmert's office, which was indicated in the text messages? Did she believe what she was actually saying when it came to putting, you know, Biden's family in Gitmo or the fact that she thought there was a, a, you know, sort of this presence of military, right, to enforce these watermarked ballots, ridiculous, ridiculousness. Um, I hope they asked her all those questions and I hope it was taped so they can show the American public because the issue that you have right now with people at these levels is that they seem to be treated in a, with a different standard. And I think the data is the data, and we need to follow that regardless of who the individuals are. And again, I think it's more important, yes, Eastman, Meadows, but also her connection directly you know, next to Trump, like Jared and things of that nature. And you said there was a nine-second call from one of the general numbers inside the Trump White House to one of the rioters while the attack was happening. Nine seconds doesn't sound like a lot, but it is once you count it off. Uh, you'd be surprised how long it does feel. What could a nine-second call possibly tell us? Nine seconds is a lifetime to a counterterrorism analyst. And when you look at what happened on the text messages, you could have a short text message, say, from Scott Perry to Mark Meadows that say, go to Signal. Uh, you could say, get out of there. You can say, where are you at? You can say, hey, we need not to talk anymore, or we need to go encrypted, go dark. Let's go to somewhere else. So, you know, anybody who says that nine seconds isn't a long time has never done counterterrorism an analysis, and they're just not quite aware of how data works. And we have to know all those White House, all those White House phone numbers, but here's really where I, where I want to hit even harder. How about Bianca Gracia? And how about what we learned because of my book, The Breach? that Kelly Sorrell, an Oath Keeper, was texting with Andrew Giuliani while he was in the White House. You know, we shake that data tree and Andrew Giuliani falls out. So, hey, I mean, that's that's part of the issue that I have here is, 
you know, we need to find out who all those White House numbers were calling. And it could be just a technical glitch or they can't get those numbers at the time. But those phone numbers will indicate which people at what desk and what and connected to what cell phones were actually talking to people that were involved in January 6th. Now, you oppose the committee sending a criminal referral to the Justice Department. You want to, the DOJ to make that call. What kind of evidence would you have to hear to change your mind on that? Well, the thing is, is that um, they've done such a great job. The committee's done a great job in the public trust sphere. I'm really not opposed to it if they do it or not. I just don't think it's really necessary. Um, And right now, if there is data sharing going on between the committee and the DOJ, which I hope there is, right? I hope there's a bit of a tiger team that's sharing data. Uh, My guess is that some of that metadata uh, that's come from call detail records or from text messages or even from open source intelligence research and the thousands of interviews they conducted can be blended to show not only who was actually directing what was going on on January 6th with his words and actions like Donald Trump, but, but but all the second and third tier actors who are also involved. And I think the DOJ is looking at that pretty hard. That's Denver Riggleman, former Republican congressman and former advisor to the January 6th committee. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Russia looks increasingly isolated on the world stage. The United Nations General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly to condemn Russia's attempted annexation of Ukrainian territory, and it's calling on Russia to reverse the move. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says this wasn't just a vote about Russia's aggression in Ukraine. This was about the very foundations of the United Nations. We just saw 143 countries affirm the fundamental principles of the U.N. Charter. You saw these countries stand up for territorial integrity. They stood up for sovereignty. And you saw these countries stand up for this institution. Only four countries joined Russia in opposing the resolution. China was among the 35 nations that abstained. India's ambassador, Ruchira Kamboj, also abstained and called for peace talks. As developing countries face the brunt of the conflict's consequences on food, fuel, and fertilizer supplies, it is critical that the voice of the Global South be heard. But others in the so-called Global South did condemn Russia. Here's Liberia's ambassador, Cecilia McGill. This is one of the unprecedented moments in international history and one that leaves an indelible stain on our great charter. Palau's ambassador, Ilana Said, urged countries that are friends with Russia to take a stand. As in life, true friends are those who have the courage and conviction to tell you the truth, to urge you back on the right path when you've gone wrong even when it's uncomfortable. While many countries said they want to see diplomacy, U.S. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield said the only way to bring peace is to stop Russia's aggression. She said the world has to stand together with conviction, and she believes it did with the General Assembly vote. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, more than 1,000 residents of Colorado who lost homes in fires last December say they're worried that new green building codes will make it too expensive to rebuild. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Inuendo in Natick and Inuendo.com. And Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Who's least likely to vote in the midterms next month, even if they think the country is headed in the wrong direction? Young Americans. I feel like the things that matter most to me don't seem to matter at all to politicians. I don't think that we are actually being heard. But are politicians any more likely to listen to young Americans if they don't turn up at the ballot box? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy today with a high near 71. We'll have some gusty winds and a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Tonight, rain and thunderstorms with a low around 61. The showers may continue into Friday morning. Otherwise, cloudy with a high near 70 and still pretty windy. It's 60 degrees in Boston. Coming to WBUR City Space next Wednesday, On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty discusses a new study on concussions with neurology professor Dr. Jesse Mez and Olympic gold medal soccer player Brianna Skirt. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From FINRA, Seeking arbitrators who can give back to their communities by lending their professional knowledge and expertise to help resolve disputes. Learn more at finra.org slash become an arbitrator. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. In Colorado, a climate-driven disaster is testing a community's resolve on climate change. They had just adopted new green building codes when last year's Marshall Fire hit in the dead of winter, incinerating more than 1,000 homes. Now residents are wondering if they can really afford the tougher, greener homes. Here's Sam Brash of Colorado Public Radio. The beginning of this story, it's not really the fire itself. It kicked off a few months earlier at a Louisville City Council meeting. Thank you all for joining this evening. Um, Louisville is a progressive suburb in Boulder County. It adopted a climate plan to slash its emissions in 2020. And in that meeting last year, the city proposed what would have been the state's most ambitious green building codes. Many kids testified in favor. My future depends on the world making this decision, so we might as well start here. And the council approved, requiring new homes to be extremely energy efficient. Superior, a town just across a highway, soon considered similar standards. Local leaders assumed they would apply to deep-pocketed developers. Then the Marshall Fire changed everything. And fire's jumping 36 right now. Big push coming through. I think we're going to have people trapped here in just a second. Winds are shifting. I would evacuate. It's moving north now. We have multiple houses fully involved. 
Suddenly, hundreds of families had to rebuild, and many feared the new codes would make that way more expensive. In February, about 100 fire victims crowded the sidewalks outside Louisville City Hall and called for the codes to be revoked. We all want to do the best we can, but we want to come back to our homes. Concerns about costs are understandable, says Boulder County Recovery Manager Gary Sanfison. After the fire, insurance payouts are falling far short of record rebuilding costs, sometimes by hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a systemic problem that predated this disaster, and it's really exacerbating this one due to the cost of uh, building materials and labor. Both communities ended up making the new code optional for fire victims. And this is where the state stepped in. See, together with Colorado's largest power company, it now offers cash rebates for climate-friendly rebuilds. A team of architects and builders crafted a plan to take advantage of those incentives. It's a new house designed to show that a green home doesn't have to be a luxury home. So we really wanted to like prove that point and really make this even cheaper than some of the homes that are coming out at the exact same square footage. This is Andrew Mitchler. He's behind a project to make a middle-class home built to passive house standards, a green certification first developed in Europe. It's called the Restore Passive House. None of them have been built yet, but Mitchler made something similar for himself. Sure, let's go inside and take a look. The house is a modern rectangle tucked under a metal roof. It clings to the side of a cliff in the Colorado foothills. So what we do is we design buildings that are extremely uh, well insulated, and as a result, they end up using about one-tenth of the energy of a basic code home nowadays. One-tenth of the energy. One-tenth of the energy needs. The house is so efficient thanks to its hulking walls. Each one is thicker than a car tire, which favors a basic design. Mitchler says that has an added benefit in fire-prone landscapes. The house is simplified in shape, so there's less places for embers to get in to the corners, nooks and crannies of the house and start fires from there. The final design for the Restore Passive House is super straightforward. Imagine two house-shaped blocks, kind of like Monopoly pieces, arranged around a two-car garage. To control costs, the team limited options for customization and negotiated discounts with local suppliers. And then there's those green building incentives. Mitchler was thrilled to find out they knock off an extra $50,000. Suddenly we were kind of in the ballpark for really making the affordability part count. Okay, so the final price for one of these three-bedroom homes, an estimated $550,000. Fire victim Peter Ruprecht knows that sounds like a lot for a rebuild, but the former computer scientist says it's not in Boulder County. This is just a house for regular people. It's, it doesn't cost that much more than a production house would. Today, Ruprecht's neighborhood is a collection of vacant construction sites. He raised a family there, but there's parts of his old home that he doesn't miss. The houses were definitely uh, built to a price point. The wind would blow in through the walls, and so it was cold in the house in the winter. And it was just kind of uncomfortable. His family is now the first to buy a Restore Passive House. It wasn't the cheapest home on the market, but it was close. And he wanted a house built for climate change, something more efficient, less flammable, and better sealed against poor air quality. The Restore House actually exceeds the green building codes the town of Superior considered before the fire. I think having a way better house is a silver lining from this whole disaster. <laughs> I'm just glad that we're going to be able to come back to our neighborhood and to have a house that's just going to perform way better. It's unclear how many of Ruprecht's neighbors will follow his lead. 
At this point, only 10% of fire victims have permits to start rebuilding, and less than half plan to use those green building incentives. Most homeowners are still negotiating with their insurance companies and trying to find any home that can work within their budgets. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Denver. The collection of paintings by Dutch painter Johannes Vermeer draws viewers from all over the world to the National Gallery of Art. We have people whose mission it is to see every Vermeer, and that will take them from Tokyo to Washington. Alexandra Libby is an associate curator at the museum in Washington, D.C. Even in his day, he was special. We forget in our age of mass visual culture that it wasn't quite like that 350 years ago. Vermeer's life and creative process is full of mysteries, but researchers rarely have had the chance to really examine the paintings. When you take one off the wall for five hours, you get comments. When the pandemic hit and museums closed, a team of researchers finally had time to really study the Vermeers with high-tech imaging devices. One of which was invented for the Mars rover that we can now use on a painting and say, well, what are the elemental particles that are part of this? These particles of paint confirm their suspicions. The painting Girl with a Flute is now believed to be the work of an associate of Vermeer, possibly an assistant or student. It was poorly prepared from the very beginning. And that's just not something that Vermeer does. Libby is excited about this new information. She says the best cultural discoveries are the ones that don't shut the door on history. They're the ones that crack it open and say, come on, everybody, like, let's think about this some more. Girl with a Flute is part of a new exhibition at the National Gallery called Vermeer's Secrets. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, the president of the Los Angeles City Council has resigned amid growing outrage over leaked recording of her saying many racist remarks. And later today, the Labor Department releases its report on inflation in September. The findings will help determine the cost of living adjustment Social Security recipients receive for next year. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Ukraine say dozens of cities and towns were targeted by Russian missiles for a fourth consecutive day. Areas in and around the capital, Kyiv, were attacked by Russian drones as air raid sirens sounded. The BBC's Hugo Bachega has more. The mayor of Mykolaiv said the city was heavily shelled at around 1 in the morning local time. The top floors of a residential building were destroyed and emergency teams were still searching through the rubble. Ukraine says this is how Russia is responding to military setbacks by attacking civilian sites and critical infrastructure across the country. The Biden administration says it plans to expel migrants from Venezuela who cross into the U.S. from Mexico illegally. Officials cite their soaring numbers at the southern border. 
At the same time, NPR's Joel Rose says the Department of Homeland Security is setting up a new legal pathway for up to 24,000 Venezuelan migrants who meet eligibility requirements. Many of the migrants crossing this year, you know, simply don't have family or community connections already in the U.S. who could sponsor them. And that's a big difference between Venezuelans and many other migrants who've come before. And, you know, many of these migrants may still decide to just take their chances at the border. More than 150,000 migrants from Venezuela crossed the southern border during the last fiscal year. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A group of progressive Democrats on Beacon Hill want to change a 1986 state tax refund law. That current law takes effect when the state takes in a lot more tax revenue than expected. It's only kicked in twice, including this year. Right now, excess money is returned to taxpayers proportionately to what they paid. State Representative Mike Connolly wants to put a cap on how much those making a million dollars or more could get back. Once you hit the million-dollar income, the limit will be $6,500 on your refund. And to the extent that will create a significant pool of additional money, we will redistribute that money to all of the other recipients. Connolly says that will mean low-income workers who pay little or no income tax will get larger refunds than under current law. Democratic leaders on Beacon Hill have hinted that they don't support changing the law for now. A 91-year-old woman known for her civil rights work in Boston is recovering from being stabbed. Police say Jean McGuire was attacked while walking her dog Tuesday night in Franklin Park. McGuire was the first black woman to serve on the Boston School Committee. She also helped found and run the Metco busing program. Police have not made any arrests. Health officials in Boston are urging people to get their kids vaccinated against the flu. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports the plea follows a recent uptick in the number of patients at children's hospitals in the area. Boston's public health commissioner says the rise in pediatric hospitalizations is being driven by various respiratory illnesses. And while health officials can't predict with 100% certainty how bad this year's flu season will be, Dr. Basolo Ojikutu says Australia just had a particularly bad one. Oftentimes, we all underestimate the flu, and you don't realize that the flu can cause severe illness, hospitalization, and some children do die from the flu on an annual basis. Dr. Ojikutu says the flu shot is safe and effective. More than 130 people got vaccinated yesterday at City Hall. Another flu clinic will be held there on Monday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? The Bruins opened their season with a win last night. They beat the Capitals 5-2 in Washington. David Pasternak had a goal and three assists in the game. The Bees will be home on Saturday to skate with the Arizona Coyotes. Overcast with a chance of rain and high winds today. Temperatures will be in the 70s. More rain and maybe a thunderstorm this evening and overnight. It'll be in the low 60s. Tomorrow, cloudy again with a chance of rain and still with gusty winds. Temperatures will be near 70. The weekend looks great, though. Sunny and near 70 on Saturday. Mostly sunny and upper 60s on Sunday. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. 
Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Insperity, providing HR services for 30-plus years, including access to employee benefits and payroll. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The controversy engulfing the Los Angeles City Council has opened up long-simmering racial tensions in the city. After days of mounting pressure, the former leader of the Los Angeles City Council resigned her seat yesterday. Nuri Martinez was one of the most powerful politicians in the city until she was caught on a secret recording making racist remarks during a conversation with two of her council colleagues. The scandal is upending politics in L.A. as demands for more resignations continue. We're joined now by NPR's Adrian Florido, who is in Los Angeles and has been covering this story. Um, Adrian, Nuri Martinez has been facing calls to resign from the city council for days now, but uh, until yesterday, she had resisted. What finally uh, did it? Well, the pressure, A, had just become overwhelming, and the calls for her resignation came from as high up as the White House. What Nuri Martinez was heard saying on this leaked tape were just about the worst things you could say as a politician in a city like Los Angeles, where cross-racial coalitions are so important in politics. She used racist language to talk about black people, indigenous Mexican immigrants, and others. And this all happened during a conversation with two council colleagues, all of them Latinos, about how to increase their political power through the city's redistricting process while diluting the power of black voters. So people were really outraged. And that outrage was very loud in Los Angeles. Uh, Now that she has resigned, though, how are people responding? Well, they're happy, of course, but but they're saying that it's not enough. Uh, Last night, I was in South Los Angeles at a meeting that community organizers called to bring black and Latino residents together to diffuse tension, given that this racism came out of the mouths of Latino politicians. People at this meeting were celebrating Martinez's resignation and the resignation of a union leader who was also part of that conversation. But they said that they were going to keep demanding that the other two council members on that tape, Kevin De Leon and Gil Cedillo, also resign. All right, so Adrian, clearly this is not over yet. Uh, but in what other ways is this uh, racism scandal being felt in L.A.? Well, in a lot of ways, uh, L.A. is electing a new mayor in less than a month, and a debate between the two candidates this week focused mostly on which of the two, Congresswoman Karen Bass or businessman Rick Caruso, is best equipped to heal the city's racial divides. Uh, As I mentioned, a lot of community groups are working to ensure that racial tensions don't flare up. Uh, The state attorney general also announced yesterday that he is launching an investigation into the city's redistricting process, since that's what Martinez and her colleagues uh, were discussing on this tape. So, Adrian, I don't know if healing starts uh, yet, but uh, I mean, what's next here? Because just things are just so raw. Well, something that a lot of people here are saying is going to be required before healing can start is that these other two council members must resign, and whether they will is a big question. Uh, they, they, along with Martinez, have been the most high-profile Latino leaders in the city, and so if they do step down, how does that reshape Latino political power here? Uh, I'm also sensing an urgency among Latino organizers to start addressing the anti-blackness and colorism that's common among Latinos but rarely discussed, uh, and that's something that black people in L.A. are saying they want too. 
Kiana Salina, a black organizer, told me yesterday that she wants more honest talk about the fact that it's not only white people who harbor anti-black racism. And we're caught up in it, but what happens when it dies down? Are we going to go back to denying anti-black racism? She said she hopes not, but also knows that uh, that will require a lot of work. That's NPR race correspondent Adrian Florido. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Thank you, I. One group of Americans is getting a big pay raise next year, likely between 8 and 9 percent. We're talking about retirees and others who depend on Social Security. Starting in January, the average benefit check is expected to rise by about $140 a month. The increase is designed to keep pace with the cost of living, which has also been climbing at an alarming rate. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Tulsa retiree Lynn Christofferson relies almost entirely on Social Security to pay her bills. She's worried about the rising price of gasoline, and her electric bill has been going up as well. I quit using my dryer today. I'm back to hanging up my clothes in my apartment. And I've heard rumors that it's going up again. Then it was like, good grief. Just yesterday, the Energy Department warned that electric heating bills will likely be 10 percent higher this winter than last. For families who heat with natural gas, the increase could be 28 percent. Rent gobbles up much of Christofferson's monthly income. She lives in a two-bedroom apartment in a Tulsa senior community. She's worried that before long, she'll have to downsize. I just got my rent increase notice Tuesday, and it's another $100 a month. Luckily, Social Security benefits will also be going up come January. The annual increase is automatic, pegged to inflation the previous July, August, and September. Most years, when prices are stable, it's a trivial adjustment. Now, though, with prices climbing rapidly, Christofferson's about to get the biggest cost of living adjustment in decades. Wow, that's huge. (laughs) That will make a difference. More than 65 million people will see their benefits increase, including disabled workers and survivors, as well as retirees. Bill List, who retired four years ago in Pennsylvania, notes it's a significantly bigger income boost than the typical worker is getting. I always used to say when I was working, people on Social Security always get referred to as being on a fixed income, but they're the only group in the country that is not on a fixed income. They at least get a COLA. Whereas a lot of people in the working world, it depends on how the business is doing, whether they get a raise or not. Social Security benefits still aren't all that generous. The average retiree currently receives about $1,625 a month. Kathleen Robig, who's with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, notes that for about one in five seniors, Social Security is pretty much their only source of income. So keeping pace with inflation is crucial. This is one way that we can be sure that they can afford their housing costs and their food costs and other important necessities in their lives. Retirees who don't have to commute every day are typically less sensitive to rising gasoline prices, but they do have to buy groceries. Miriam Garcia, a retiree in Florida, has cut back on buying fresh salmon, even though she says it's good for you and better than taking pills. So now I'm eating canned tuna (laughs) or pasta and sauce. And then a piece of chicken that I've bought when it was on sale. Garcia's retirement savings have also taken a hit from the falling stock market. Social Security recipients lost ground this year because the cost of living increase they got in January, 5.9 percent, was no match for the inflation that followed. Bill List is optimistic buying power will be stronger in the year ahead. If we get a better than average increase in January this year and inflation at least doesn't go up any further, we should be okay. 
A lot of people are hoping inflation will cool off soon. But while prices for some things, like used cars, have come down, other prices continue to climb. And Federal Reserve officials have cautioned their efforts to slow inflation with higher interest rates will take time to bear fruit. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, a close look at Massachusetts ballot question one, which would raise taxes on incomes over a million dollars. Supporters say it would help narrow the state's income gap. Opponents say it's just not fair. And in our next hour, as he prepares for a key meeting with China's Communist Party leaders, a look back at President Xi Jinping's decade in power. In your forecast, cloudy with a chance of rain today. It'll also be windy with temperatures in the low 70s. Tonight, a 100 percent chance of rain and thunderstorms. Temperatures will fall to the low 60s. Tomorrow, it might be a rainy Friday, otherwise overcast and near 70. Then a great weekend, mostly sunny and dry in the upper 60s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Now in business news, Boston-based electric vehicle company XL Fleet is changing directions. It's planning to stop installing electric drivetrains on gas vehicles. The company blames supply chain shortages during the pandemic. Going forward, the company will merge with a solar installation company. The Boston Globe reports XL Fleet is also being investigated for alleged exaggerations of revenue projections. More than a dozen dams across New England are being bought by a Canadian company. A subsidiary of Hydro-Quebec is buying 13 hydroelectric power stations along the Connecticut and Deerfield rivers. The purchase will make Hydro-Quebec the largest power operator of its kind in New England. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. LindaMoodBell.com slash NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This fall, voters will decide if they want wealthier Massachusetts residents to pay more taxes. The proposal is known as the Millionaire's Tax, or Ballot Question 1. It's a constitutional amendment that would add a 4% tax to income above $1 million. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports that in ads, two small business owners have become the faces for each side of the issue. We're now going to drive down around the Cranberry Bog. Uh, That's Murray, by the way. Leo Kakunas is driving around his organic cranberry farm in Harwich. The goats and sheep hide as his dog Murray runs alongside his golf cart. Kakunas has owned this farm with his wife Andrea for almost 25 years. I love the lifestyle of, of how we've lived. I am so fortunate to have 50 acres of land here on Cape Cod 
and to be able to shut the gates and pretend that I'm in the middle of Oklahoma. But cranberry farming hasn't exactly been a lucrative business, and the Kukunises have kept a pretty tight budget, using most of what they saved to buy land. Turns out, pretty good investment. Kakunas plans to sell some property as he approaches retirement. If question one passes, he'll likely have to pay more taxes on the profit he makes from the sale. And to him, that doesn't seem fair. Why am I being penalized for having done the right thing, for having worked very hard, conserved, saved so I could have land, so when I turn 65 years old, I could start selling sections of it off? And that's exactly what we're going through now. Right now, everyone in Massachusetts pays the same tax rate on income, 5% on whatever you make. Ballot question one would bump that rate to 9% after the first million dollars. Kakunas is an outspoken opponent, appearing in a TV ad. Its top contributors include mega Boston contractor Suffolk Construction and a packaging company owned by Robert Kraft, who also owns the New England Patriots. Question one is deceptive. Question one doesn't guarantee a nickel of increased funding. Kakunas also worries the new tax could encourage more businesses to leave the state. That includes big distributors who get small farmers' crops to market. It's going to affect us in jobs, especially in jobs. And it's also going to affect us in small companies like myself to be able to compete and sell our products with a larger firm. Kakunas says the millionaire's tax is bad policy. But small business owner Carson Eckweiler believes if you make more, you should contribute more. Massachusetts has the sixth highest income gap in the country, according to the Economic Policy Institute. Especially throughout COVID, the the gap between, you know, lower income and higher income people has just gotten wider and wider and wider. And so I think that this is also just a very small step in helping to um, lessen that gap. Eckweiler co-owns Democracy Brewing in downtown Boston with 10 of her colleagues. The millionaire's tax won't affect her tax bill. Are you making a million dollars? We are not. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) She appears in a TV ad supporting the proposed tax. It's funded by unions and nonprofits that support democratic and progressive causes. It says the money raised by the tax is for education and transportation. Question one is a great opportunity to make things better for everyone. It raises $2 billion that the Constitution requires. Most of the workers at Democracy Brewing take the MBTA to work. And let's just say the T has had a few problems over the past couple of years. It's hard to operate a small business when we have such a small team and people aren't showing up um, because of these issues. So Eckweiler thinks more funding for things like public transit would be good for business. And the way she sees it, it's a small ask. Fewer than 1% of households would pay more in taxes, according to a recent study. And the extra money would help everyone out. But critics say amending the state constitution is no small ask. Eileen McEnany is the president of the fiscal watchdog group Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation. She thinks a new tax will push more high-income earners to leave Massachusetts, especially when working from home is easier than ever. No one foresaw a pandemic or the fundamental changes in how we work and live. If you have a constitutional amendment, with the tax rate in the Constitution, you're stuck with it for a while. So I I think it's a very inflexible policy that could be harmful. At its core, Question 1 asks voters, what seems fair to you? A yes vote supports the idea that people who make more money should contribute a higher portion of their income to state coffers, and no vote keeps the tax rate the same for everyone. 
and whatever voters decide will be etched into the state's most important governing document. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. That story is a part of a series on Massachusetts ballot questions. You can find out more at WBUR.org. Meanwhile, Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what's coming up later today at 11 on Radio Boston. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Such good timing with that. Yes. Because the first thing we're going to bring to the show today is an explainer on question one on the Fair Share Amendment uh, with Evan Horowitz, uh, who runs a research center at Tufts. Just fantastic breakdown of what does it mean? What do the numbers look like? Mm-hmm. Whether you vote yes or no. Um, and then we have a debate on the issue on air tomorrow uh, in the 11 o'clock hour that we'll video stream as well as broadcast. So really good to be a part of that series here at WBUR. Yeah, I have a lot of questions that I could go deeper into. So I'm glad you're doing that. What else do you have today? So then we have amazing women. I love this. We have so many fierce, powerful, leading women in Boston. And today we have two of them on the show. First, uh, celebrity chef chef Tiffany Faison is back. She has always got something cooking, literally and figuratively, for us to talk about. And I know she does today, too. Also, um, fantastic conversation with Celeste Ng, mm. who is the, you know, the world famous author, has a new book that came out last week, Our Missing Hearts. Kind of rocked my world when I read it, and we had a fantastic conversation about it that we're going to bring you today. I love her. Please pass that on to me. I, I want to read it as well. So I'm good. so jealous that you get to interview I know. That's so fun, isn't it? <laughs> I know. All right. Thank you very much, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum, in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Cloudy skies may give way to rain today, and it'll be windy. We'll have temperatures in the low 70s. Those fall to the low 60s tonight, and there's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms. Tomorrow, a cloudy and maybe rainy Friday near 70, then dry for the weekend. It'll be mostly sunny and in the upper 60s both days. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 753. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. A new photography book puts black actors and actresses at the center of some of Hollywood's most iconic movie images. NPR's Mark Rivers has a story. The images should be familiar to any lover of Hollywood. A man with an umbrella hangs from a street lamp, its glow illuminating both the rain and the joy on his face. A showering woman framed in close-up screams at an unseen attacker. A man in uniform salutes an audience in front of a giant American flag. In your head, you should picture Gene Kelly and Singing in the Rain. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. Janet Lee in Psycho. George C. Scott in Patton. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. But open up photographer Carell Augustus' new book, Black Hollywood, reimagining iconic movie moments. And instead, you'll see actor Dulé Hill under that lamp. The screaming woman is actress Simbi Kali, 
and that man in uniform is instead a woman, actress Aisha Hines. In the book, Augustus casts black actors and actresses in some of cinema's most memorable moments, placing them in spaces long denied to them. He says that omission persisted in the 1980s, when he grew up watching mainstream hits like Back to the Future and Say Anything. We were left out of these stories. And, and oftentimes when we saw ourselves in these stories, we were, you know, getting arrested or in a prison scene or in a gang scene. And I just wanted to do whatever I could to sort of change up the narrative visually and artistically. Augustus shot his first photograph for the project back in 2010, before Black Lives Matter, before Oscar's So White, before Black Panther. He knew some people might view the book as a reaction to those events. At some points, I found myself in tandem with these movements, and I just embraced it. What may stick out most in the book is that you won't find A-listers like Denzel Washington or Angela Bassett here. Not that Augustus didn't go for them. When I first started this book, my fantasy was to get all the Black A-listers in Hollywood, right? And then I realized if I did that, I would have probably 11 people. He expanded his net, finding performers who may not be household names, but have built a healthy portfolio of credits. Like Neil Brown Jr., who you may know as Lawrence's quick-talking best friend Chad on Insecure. <laughs> Chad, are you rocking a purse? <laughs> That's my purse. See, I want to carry it in the porta potty. Expensive, I know, because I bought it. In the book, Brown takes on the role of John McClane in Die Hard, squeezing his way through a tight air vent, blood and an exasperated look on his face. I was trying to imagine everything John had been through into that point, and you know, imagine what the whole film was about, but like stuff it into this one moment. Brown says the project helps strengthen his sense of kinship to his fellow actors. Same for Amber Stevens West, who graces the book's cover in a black, sultry satin gown as Audrey Hepburn's character in Breakfast at Tiffany's. A supporting player in entertainments like New Girl on 22 Jump Street, West says a center stage role like Hepburn's wasn't possible when she began her career. It's very much the story of a lot of black people in Hollywood, where they're typecast as like the friend and they're kind of filling a role as like the diversity piece in the project. Then there's Aisha Hines' General Patton. The first photograph Augustus shot and also the first in the book. Hines substitutes George C. Scott's withering gaze and granite stance for a knowing smile, a glint in the eye, a curvy bend at the hips. She brings some swagger and a little sexiness to patriotism. She told me this was no accident. I think the superpower of a Black woman is to occupy the space and the fullness of who she is. And, you know, we don't have to deny our sex appeal in order to also operate in strength. A veteran of shows like The Shield, True Blood, and Shots Fired, her best role to date may have been in WGN's Underground, playing the great abolitionist Harriet Tubman. That role pairs well here. Hines says her take on Patton can remind people that Black women have always been leaders in the fight for this country. We're constantly at war with so many things and we're constantly sort of taking the battle scars and the battle wounds you know and people are constantly looking to black women to lead armies of change unlike movements like oscar so white augustus doesn't see his book as a force for change but he hopes that it subverts people's expectations and by placing these actors and images sacred to hollywood's idea of itself it implies that these images belong to black people too when you see the first Miss Black America, Vanessa Williams, sitting regal and magnificent atop a throne as Cleopatra, it just feels right. What I want from this book is for people to finally see and realize that we should be considered a standard, too. And he says things have improved in the industry since he first started working on the book. Augustus is working on a part two. Perhaps by the time he's finished, the standard he's envisioned could be closer to a reality. Mark Rivers, NPR News.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. The Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol will hold its ninth public hearing this afternoon. It could be the committee's final hearing. Today, members are expected to present some new evidence about former President Trump's role in the riot at the Capitol. WBUR and NPR will have live coverage of today's hearing beginning at 1 p.m. on air and at WBUR.org. In your forecast, cloudy, windy, and in the low 70s today, rain and thunderstorms tonight in the low 60s. It's 62 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been ordered to pay nearly a billion dollars to the relatives of eight Sandy Hook victims and a former FBI agent. It's Thursday, October 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the January 6th committee reconvenes today with a focus on former President Trump's role. WBUR and NPR will have live coverage beginning at 1. Also, in their first debate, Massachusetts gubernatorial candidates Maura Healey and Jeff Deal each try to connect the other to national figures. My opponent has said recently that he backs Donald Trump 100% of the time. Joe Biden, the person that you supported, is leaving us right now in an economic disaster just two years into the job. And this hour, a new report shows a huge drop in the global wildlife population. In sports, the Bruins win, cloudy and rainy in the low 70s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol is scheduled to present new findings today. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports those findings result from additional evidence and witness testimony. This will be the special committee's first public hearing since a cluster of sessions with some eye-popping moments this past summer. A select committee aide told reporters this hearing will look a little different, with the panel taking a step back to more broadly look at the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. That could include materials recently obtained from the Secret Service about its role, as well as revisiting former President Trump's pressure campaign on key officials. All the committee members will have an equal role presenting at this hearing. The panel's final report is expected later this year. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Officials in Ukraine say Russia has fired more missiles and drones at Ukrainian cities today. That includes areas around the capital, Kyiv. Russia has been heavily attacking Ukrainian infrastructure for the past four days. This follows the bombing of a vital bridge last weekend between Russia and Crimea used by Russian forces. The U.N. General Assembly has overwhelmingly voted to condemn Russia's illegal annexation of parts of Ukraine. Linda Fasulo tells us 143 countries voted in favor of the resolution. The resolution says that Russia's actions are not valid under international law and violate Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It also demands that Moscow withdraw its troops and calls for an end to the conflict through political dialogue that respects Ukraine's borders. Kyiv's UN ambassador described the vote as, quote, amazing, 
Moscow's envoy said the measure could destroy efforts for a diplomatic solution. Linda Fasulo reporting from New York. Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez is quitting. She had faced calls to resign over racist remarks she made in conversation with two other L.A. Council members. NPR's Adrian Florido reports California's Attorney General says he will investigate the city of Los Angeles's redistricting process. State Attorney General Rob Bonta said an investigation is needed to help restore public confidence in L.A.'s redistricting process. In a conversation that was secretly recorded last year, the city council president discussed ways to increase Latino political power in the city through the redistricting process while diluting the power of black voters. She also cast racist insults at a white colleague and his young son, who's black. The two other council members on that recording are also facing calls to resign. In Los Angeles, the maps used for city elections are determined by the city council, not by an independent commission. Since the scandal broke this week, proposals have emerged to reform the redistricting process. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are fewer than 10 days before early voting begins in Massachusetts and fewer than four weeks before Election Day itself. The two major party candidates for governor met last night in their first debate. Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal discussed a number of key issues, including the economy. Deal says environmental policies backed by Healey are pushing utility bills higher. We are seeing spikes in home Heating, we are seeing spikes in electric rates, 64%. My opponent believes that we should be fossil fuel free by 2030. And yet, with the renewables that are out there, there's no way to get there. We need to get from A to B responsibly. I'm for renewable energies, but we can't do it irresponsibly. Healy refuted that and says she'll make economic issues a key part of her administration. I put forward plans that are going to center the work on affordability, driving down the cost of housing, driving down the cost of transportation, driving down the cost of health care and child care. My opponent wants to take away minimum wage. My opponent wants to take away health care. Last night's debate was hosted by NBC Boston, Telemundo Boston, and NECN. Boston planning officials will vote today on new zoning rules that could speed the transformation of the area along Western Avenue. The road runs through Alston and Brighton between the Mass Pike and the Charles River. Developers are eyeing a series of projects that would bring new labs and apartments to the area. The Boston Planning and Development Agency is considering ways to allow for denser construction and more multifamily housing. A Connecticut jury has ordered Alex Jones to pay nearly a billion dollars to relatives of eight victims of the Sandy Hook school shooting. Money will also go to a former FBI agent. As Frankie Graziano reports, it's the price for a decade of lies about the 2012 tragedy. Six jurors ruled the plaintiff should be paid $965 million in compensatory damages with additional punitive damages. The plaintiffs had argued that Jones' claims had brought harassment and even death threats. After the verdict, Robbie Parker, whose daughter was killed in the shooting, thanked his lawyers. I let my voice be taken away from me and my power be taken away from me. At the expense of my daughter and at the expense of my family. Jones' attorney called the verdict a dark day for free speech and says he plans to appeal. It's the second such verdict against Jones for claims he's made about Sandy Hook. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Frankie Graziano. 
The Worcester City Council has denied a petition to change the name of some city streets. Leaders at the UMass Chan Medical School wanted the city to change the names of Plantation Street, Parkway, and Terrace. They said the name Plantation evokes the painful history of slavery and connotes oppression. City councilors tell the Telegram and Gazette that a name change would inconvenience nearly 7,000 residents. They also say the school should have reached out to the community before filing the petition. It's 807. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? A heads-up for drivers on 495 southbound in Andover. There's a crash before the exit for Interstate 93. Backups begin in Lawrence. State police say it's going to take a while for everything to clear out. In sports, the Bruins topped the Capitals 5-2 last night in Washington. It was the first game and the first win of the season for Boston. The Bees' next game is Saturday when they'll host the Arizona Coyotes. In your forecast, cloudy to start today, then a chance for rain and strong winds by the afternoon. High today in the lower 70s. Rain, gusty winds, and possibly a thunderstorm overnight, low around 60. The rain clears out tomorrow morning. It'll be cloudy in the afternoon with a high near 70. Dry for the weekend. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. There are new revelations about what led up to the Justice Department's August search of President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. That's according to reporting from The Washington Post. A witness told authorities that the former president told them to move classified material from the resort to his private residence after he got a subpoena for the documents. And security camera footage reportedly corroborated that account. This all came before the FBI search of Trump's residence and private club where investigators were looking for evidence of possible crimes. Devlin Barrett is one of the reporters who broke that story, speaking to people familiar with the investigation, and he joins us now. Good morning, Devlin. Good morning, Layla. So let's start with how important this evidence is in the Justice Department's investigation. So the folks I've spoken to describe it as very important parts of the evidence they gathered. Uh, You know, exactly how damaging it is, I think that's something that needs to be seen in the totality of all the evidence. And there's still more things we'd like to know. But it's it's been described to me as clearly very important to investigators. And within what we do know... What does it tell us about the case? I think it tells us a couple things. One, that there is at least one witness who says Donald Trump told them directly to do something that is of concern to investigators, specifically move boxes Mm -hmm. at a key time in the investigation. Two, it tells us that there is important videotape evidence that buttresses at least part of that account. And One of the things we've known about this case for some time is that the videotape evidence is quite important, but we weren't really sure exactly why. This tells us the why that that videotape evidence is important. And how reliable is this witness? And you, you report in your story that the witness's statements changed dramatically when agents re interviewed them multiple times, right? Right. And that can happen sometimes in cases. And it's certainly not fatal to credibility, but it can be 
an issue. And I think one of the things that we have yet to understand is how problematic does the Justice Department and the FBI think that significant change is to their case and their investigation. Do you know anything about the employee's relationship to the former president, exactly what that relationship was or is? Well, what's been described to us is that this person worked underneath Donald Trump and took instructions from them. And that was a regular part of their job. So I think this person certainly is in a position to know what some of these conversations were. But I think there's a lot more to understand about the exact parameters of the relationship. And what has uh, the Trump camp said about this? So a Trump spokesperson told us that when we asked for comment, they, they didn't really get into the specifics of what we're reporting, but they did say that you know, this investigation has been part of a, a political attack by the Biden Justice Department and argued that the Justice Department is treating Trump differently than past presidents have been treated on questions of documents. And to be clear, the, the National Archives has pushed back quite hard against any suggestion that what's at issue in the Trump case also existed for other presidents and other sets of documents. Devlin Barrett, thank you for your time. Thank you. Xi Jinping is poised to secure a historic third term as general secretary of the Communist Party in China. And even though he had risen through the ranks and served as vice president, few understood his ambition or foresaw what he would become. China's most powerful leader since Chairman Mao. NPR's John Ruich has been speaking to people whose lives have been impacted by his presidency. Ten years ago, Xi Jinping waved and flashed a warm smile as he became leader of the most populous nation on the planet and the world's second largest economy. In his first speech, he talked about the great revival of the Chinese nation. China, he said, would stand more firmly and powerfully and make a greater contribution to mankind. One person paying close attention when she assumed power was a scholar named Ilham Toti. I do remember him calling his friends being very excited and uh, sounding very um, hopeful. That's Toti's daughter, Jur Ilham, who lives in the United States now. He sounded so excited. He's like, I think it's going to change now. Things are going to get better. Toti was talking about things for Uyghurs in China. That's the Turkic-speaking ethnic minority from the western region of Xinjiang. Toti is himself Uyghur, and he was an outspoken activist for Uyghur rights and the Uyghur language and culture. His high hopes for Xi Jinping didn't last long. He was officially arrested uh, January 15, 2014. Three months later, Xi would visit Xinjiang and secretly set in motion an unprecedented crackdown on Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in the name of fighting terrorism and separatism. By some estimates, a million or more people would eventually be detained. That September, Ilham Toti was sentenced to life in prison for separatism. It's kind of sad that he was so hopeful. The past decade in China has been marked by growing authoritarianism, and nowhere has it been clearer than in Xinjiang. That appears to be down to one man, Xi Jinping. Few outside the party's secretive elite know exactly how or why Xi was installed as party boss a decade ago. It was a time, though, when many felt the party was in crisis, riddled with corruption and losing moral authority. 
Xi's task, according to a common narrative, was to clean things up and reassert the Communist Party's dominance. If so, he's embraced the mission. But one of the biggest challenges he faced, few predicted. In a yoga studio in Shanghai, an instructor with a ponytail and tattoos runs his students through a series of movements. He goes by the name Vis. He didn't want me to use his full name to avoid trouble from the authorities for speaking freely to a journalist. He's teaching a fair amount these days. Earlier this year, when COVID-19 cases were rising in Shanghai, not so much. We were locked in for four months in total. It was the longest in Shanghai. China has faced the pandemic with an unflinching zero-COVID policy that Xi Jinping has stood firmly behind. COVID cases and deaths have been kept to a minimum, but at a cost. In March, Shanghai was hastily shut down. The city's 25 million residents were forced to stay in their homes. Supply chains for food broke down. Businesses suffered. It was impossible to do any work in person, and online it was very difficult. As the weeks ticked by, frustration grew. We were angry, we were helpless, and also felt like crying. That's what it was like. Vis and his neighbors drafted a statement of protest. He recorded it, and they played it in public for all to hear. For that, he was detained by police for 11 days. Vis says he's not political and he doesn't blame anyone. But China's the only major country still enforcing strict COVID controls. The economy continues to suffer, and it runs deeper than that. It was depressing. And if it happened once, it could happen a second time. In China, there's a saying, if you're bitten by a snake, you'll be afraid of coiled rope for a decade. It's hard to gauge public opinion in China. Independent polling on politics is banned, and speaking out against the Communist Party can get you thrown in jail. But it's clear that a lot of people like Xi Jinping. One of them is Lao Zhang, who we met in a park in Beijing. Xi Jinping is a good man. I think he's honest and upright. In today's China, that's key, according to Zhang, who's 72. He's a retired factory worker, and he's seen a lot of change in China over his lifetime. He says she has been addressing China's most pressing problems. Zhang applauds Xi for attacking corruption and for tackling poverty and trying to create more equality. He also supports the argument that a tough approach to COVID is necessary for a country as populous as China. We want him to stay in office and have at least one more term. He's good. Zhang seems likely to get his wish. Critics, however, say Xi has overplayed his hand, that his toughness is creating more problems for China in the long run than it's solving. Take the situation in Hong Kong, for example. I'm Chongqing Kuang. I'm an activist from Hong Kong. When she came to power, Kuang was just 16 years old. She was dipping her toes into activism for the first time, working on an internet freedom campaign. I actually didn't feel like it's a dangerous thing to do because Hong Kong at the time was so free. In 2014, she joined unprecedented street protests that came to be known as the Umbrella Movement. So I'm like, okay, like they're banning us from having universal suffrage, so we're going to protest. Because that should be a basic, like, fundamental right that we should have. Five years later, a proposed extradition law sparked fresh demonstrations. Kong, who was getting her master's degree in Germany, flew home to join them. 
For Xi Jinping, the huge and sometimes violent anti-government protests were too much. In mid-2020, China took a step that would change everything. So when the national security law came out, I knew I wasn't being, I wasn't going to be, to be going back to Hong Kong after I left. Arrests since the national security law was enacted have decimated Hong Kong's democracy movement. Xi hasn't blinked. When he visited this summer, he declared the one country, two systems model for running the city a resounding success. But his crackdown has been a major source of friction between China and the West, and even led to economic sanctions. As for Kuang, she remains in exile. Basically, my life has like like go into pieces because of Xi Jinping. Now, like I lost my home, I lost a lot of my friends, and I can never set foot in Hong Kong again. Ten years ago, the Communist Party made a wager that a tougher leader with an unapologetic approach was necessary to keep the party in power and make China stronger. And when it gives Xi Jinping a fresh term in office at the party congress next week, it'll be doubling down on that bet. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, Biden administration officials have announced that they will create a narrow legal pathway for some Venezuelan migrants to stay in the U.S. Others who crossed into the U.S. illegally will be returned to Mexico immediately. And a new report from the World Wildlife Fund finds there's been a huge drop in the global wildlife population. It's 820. I'm Robin Young. New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman has been talking with Donald Trump and reporting on him for years. The scale and nature of the investigations that he's facing now are are more significant than almost anything else he has faced. What else has he faced? Maggie Haberman on her new biography, Confidence Man, next time here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The World Championships of Figure Skating are returning to Boston. They'll be held at the Garden in March of 2025. The U.S. Figure Skating Organization says more than 100,000 people attended the championships when Boston last hosted the event in 2016. Cloudy today with a high near 71. We'll have some gusty winds and a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Tonight, rain and thunderstorms with a low around 61. The showers may continue into Friday morning. Otherwise, cloudy with a high near 70 and still pretty windy. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast Thoughts on the Market offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the market. From Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place, with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue, at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. The fight against high inflation is getting tougher, fueling fears the United States is heading for a recession. For many top executives, the question is no longer if there will be a recession, it's when. NPR's David Gura reports. It's hard to find a CEO anywhere who doesn't worry there will be a recession in the next year or year and a half. Steve Odland is the head of the conference board, a group of business leaders. We're finding that 
our CEOs are overwhelmingly bracing for a recession, both in the U.S. and in Europe, but also a slowdown virtually everywhere else. Today, the conference board has released the results of its latest CEO survey, and 98% of respondents said they're preparing for a recession in the United States, and 99% of them said they're getting ready for one in Europe. Jamie Dimon is in charge of the largest bank in the U.S., which means he pays very close attention to the global economy. And these days, a lot's got him worried. There's high inflation worldwide, the cost of borrowing is going up, there have been wild swings in stocks and bonds and currencies, and then there's the war in Ukraine, which is already hurting Europe's economy. These are very, very serious things, which I think are likely to push the U.S. Uh, and you know, the world. I mean, Europe is already in a recession, and they're likely to put U.S. in some kind of recession six, nine months from now. Diamond said that on CNBC this week, and once again, he startled Wall Street. Back in June, Diamond forecasted an economic hurricane on the horizon. What's changed since then is how many CEOs agree with him and have started to prepare for a downturn. Steve Odland ran Office Depot before he got to the conference board. You know, as a CEO, if you are going into a recession, what you want to do is you want to batten down the hatches. And companies are starting to do that. Meta's Mark Zuckerberg recently told staff to expect layoffs. FedEx is closing stores and cutting back on delivery as its CEO warns of a global recession. Executives say they feel less certain about the future, Odlin notes. So we're down to a level now that is the lowest level of, of CEO confidence since the Great Recession. But the factors that led to that downturn were different. What started as a real estate slowdown infected the whole economy. Balance sheets were in tatters from households to companies to banks. Today, it all goes back to high inflation and how the Federal Reserve is fighting it. And that is shaping how the heads of companies think about what the next recession will be like. David Rubenstein is the co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest private equity firms. And as he decides where to invest billions, Rubenstein keeps a close eye on the economy. I don't see a great recession. I see if we have a recession, a modest recession, uh, two-quarter type of recession, not a, a one-year type of recession. That's in line with the conference board's results. 85% of CEOs expect a brief and shallow recession. And that's because this economy is so unique. People are still spending, but most of them are not overextended. Companies have strong balance sheets, and people have jobs. Steve Odlin says almost half the CEOs surveyed plan to hire more workers over the next 12 months, and 85% of them expect to boost pay by 3% or more. That's unheard of from this group going into a recession. Typically, you would hear that they're cutting back, that they are not going to increase wages. Executives caution no one can predict what a recession will be like, and Federal Reserve officials continue to say it's not inevitable. They argue there is a way for them to nail a so-called soft landing, whereby they get inflation under control without triggering a recession. But that path has gotten so narrow, most business leaders expect the landing will be a little rocky, at least. David Gura, NPR News, New York. A dish full of brain cells has learned to play the computer game Pong. <laughs> That's right, the original table tennis arcade game from the 1970s. NPR's John Hamilton reports that this novel achievement is part of a larger effort to understand how brain cells learn. A living brain has a kind of intelligence that a computer usually lacks. 
Take, for example, the average person's ability to make a cup of tea, says Brett Kagan, the chief scientific officer of Cortical Labs in Melbourne, Australia. You might have never been to someone else's house, but with a bit of rummaging and searching, you can probably make a decent cup of tea as long as it's got the ingredients. But even a powerful computer would struggle with that task. So Cortical Labs has been trying to understand how living brain cells acquire their intelligence. Kagan says the Pong experiment was a way for the company to answer a central question about a network of brain cells. If we do allow these cells to know the outcome of their actions, will they actually be able to change in some sort of goal-directed way? To find out, the scientists used a system that links a network of brain cells to a computer. First, the computer generated a game of Pong. Then it began sending signals to the cells, telling them where the ball was. At the same time, Kagan says, the computer began monitoring signals sent by the cells. And what we did is we took that information and we allowed it to influence this Pong game that they were playing so they could move the paddle around. The cells just had to figure out how to control the paddle's movement. To help them learn, Kagan says, the scientists provided the cells with something you might call motivation. It came in the form of electrical stimulation. If they hit the ball, we gave them something predictable. So very, very simple, predictable stimulus was the same every time. When they missed it, they got something that was totally unpredictable. White noise, but different white noise every time. Brain cells like predictable stimulation, so they began to learn how to send signals that would move the paddle in front of the ball. The brain cells never got that good, but human brain cells seemed to play a bit better than mouse brain cells, and Kagan says they all did pretty well, considering that the entire network contained fewer cells than the brain of a cockroach. If you could see a cockroach playing a game of Pong and it was able to hit the ball uh, twice as often as it was missing it, you would be pretty impressed with that cockroach. Kagan says the results, which appear in the journal Neuron, hint at a future in which biology helps computers become more intelligent. But Steve M. Potter, an adjunct associate professor at Georgia Tech, says that future is probably still a long way off. The idea of a computer that has some living components is exciting and it's starting to become reality. However, the kinds of learning that these things can accomplish is quite rudimentary right now. Even so, Potter says, the Pong playing system is a great tool for doing research. This is sort of a semi-living animal model that one can use to study all sorts of mechanisms in the nervous system. Including learning. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is NPR News. Cloudy today with a high near 71. We'll also have some gusty winds and a chance of rain in the late afternoon. It's 829. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Cambridge-based author Celeste Eng set the literary world aflame with little fires everywhere, and now she's going after our hearts. Her new novel faces today head-on, a cautionary tale about hate and fascism and a triumph of faith in each other. Celesting and Our Missing Hearts. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. It's been another day of Russian missile attacks in much of Ukraine. More than 40 cities and towns have been targeted by Russian forces, including areas in and around Ukraine's capital. At least three drone attacks were reported there. Earlier today, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the European Council's Parliamentary Assembly by video, saying he needs more air defense systems. 
In Brussels, U.S. and other defense officials have been discussing that, as Terry Schultz reports. Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley says if all countries contribute elements of air defense systems they possess, it will be possible to build an integrated system for Ukraine. But NATO allies are also concerned that their own stockpiles of weapons are being depleted, especially as the alliance raises the level of reserves it once kept on hand due to the Russian threat. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol is holding another public hearing today. The committee is expected to present some of the material turned over by the Secret Service after the agency was subpoenaed in July. Lawmakers are also expected to play additional video footage of efforts to respond to the violence as the insurrection was unfolding that day. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. This fall, Massachusetts voters will decide if they want the state's top earners to pay more in taxes. A yes vote on question one would amend the state constitution to add a 4% tax on incomes above a million dollars. More now from WBUR's Yasmin Ammer. The coalition supporting the tax wants the extra revenue to fund education and transportation. Shanique Spaulding is one of the community directors for the group called Raise Up. She says the tax would also help address growing income inequality in the state. And the Massachusetts economy is working great for the super rich, but that prosperity isn't reaching all of us. We need to make sure that our tax system is fairer in order to grow our economy and make it work for everyone. Opponents argue there's no guarantee the money will be spent on education or transit. That's because the decision will ultimately be up to lawmakers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. An advocacy group for Boston's Franklin Park says it wants the city to take new steps to strengthen safety in the park. 91-year-old Jean McGuire was attacked Tuesday night while walking her dog. She was the first black woman on the Boston School Committee and helped found the Metco busing program. McGuire is expected to survive. Ricky Thompson is president of the Franklin Park Coalition. We think there should be better lighting and also there should be security cameras, at least on the major roads, because that may not have stopped the incident, but it would have at least maybe helped in the investigation. Thompson hopes to meet with Mayor Michelle Wu and other city and community leaders to to discuss the attack. Graduate students at Dartmouth College are trying to unionize. They're asking for higher stipends and full medical benefits. They've voted to affiliate with the National United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. The students plan to ask for voluntary recognition from the school. The move follows successful unionization efforts at MIT, Harvard, and Clark. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Five different Bruins scored last night in the season opener in Washington. The Bees beat the Capitals 5-2. to two. The Bruins are off until Saturday. That's when they'll host the Arizona Coyotes. Overcast with a chance of rain and high winds today. Temperatures will be in the 70s. More rain and maybe a thunderstorm this evening and overnight. It'll be in the low 60s. Tomorrow, cloudy again with a chance of rain and still with gusty winds. Temperatures will be near 70. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper 
a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. The Biden administration says it will begin expelling Venezuelans who cross the southern border illegally. The number of Venezuelans making the dangerous journey to the southern border is soaring. Migrants are fleeing violence and insecurity in the face of economic collapse in their country. There is still a legal pathway, though, but it's narrow, and whoever applies needs to have financial sponsors in the U.S. The new policy also requires Mexico to continue its parallel effort to take back Venezuelans who entered illegally. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration for the network and joins us now. Hi, Joel. Hi, Layla. So, Joel, why is the administration doing this now? Well, the Biden administration wants to bring down the record numbers of Venezuelan migrants who've been arriving at the southern border this year. Venezuela's economy has been falling apart under authoritarian leader Nicolas Maduro and, and the impact of U.S. sanctions. The U.N. says more than six million Venezuelans have left the country in recent years. Most have resettled elsewhere in Latin America, but a growing number are making the journey to the U.S., many of them crossing on foot through the infamous Darien Gap jungle in Panama. More than 150,000 have crossed the U.S. border in the last fiscal year, including 25,000 in August alone. And that's putting a strain on immigration authorities at the border, and it's prompting mounting criticism from Republican governors who've been sending thousands of these migrants north in buses to cities run by Democratic mayors. So what's the Biden administration's approach? It's part carrot and part stick. The administration says it will immediately begin expelling Venezuelan migrants who illegally crossed the U.S. border and returning them to Mexico which is a big change because previously the administration could not expel those migrants under the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 because Mexico had refused to take them in. That's the stick. The carrot is that the U.S. will create a new legal pathway for up to 24,000 Venezuelan migrants who can meet the eligibility requirements. It's modeled on a program for admitting Ukrainian refugees earlier in the year. One requirement under this new program is that Venezuelan migrants will have to show they have not crossed the border illegally they have to apply from abroad before they fly here. And they will have to show that they have a financial sponsor who's already in the U.S., which mm. is not you know, going to be easy for many of them. Right. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said he wants to make clear that there is a lawful and orderly way for Venezuelans to come to the U.S. and that it is, quote, the only way. Now, Biden is under a lot of pressure to get border crossings down with midterm elections coming up. Is this going to help him in the midterms? It might, but, you know, there are some major obstacles. For one thing, Venezuelan migrants are still, you know, just a, a small fraction of all migrant crossings. And another obstacle is that relatively few Venezuelans are going to qualify for this new legal pathway. Mm. Many of the migrants crossing this year, you know, simply don't have family or community connections already in the U.S. who could sponsor them. And that's a big difference between Venezuelans and many other migrants who've come before. And, you know, many of these migrants may still decide to just take their chances at the border. What does Mexico have to say about all this? The U.S. and Mexico announced this agreement together, but their respective press releases emphasized very different things. The Mexican government emphasized that the U.S. will be giving out more than 60,000 additional seasonal U.S. work visas for folks from Mexico and Central America. 
No one is publicly saying that there's a quid pro quo here, but the U.S. you know can only expel these migrants under Title 42 if Mexico agrees to take them. NPR's Joel Rose, thank you for your time. You're welcome. I've got a scary fact for you. The populations of most major animal groups have plummeted. That includes mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, fish. They've dropped by an average of nearly 70% since 1970. That's according to a new report from the conservation group, the World Wildlife Fund. The report analyzed vertebrae animal populations. And here to discuss what the findings mean is Rebecca Shaw. She's the chief scientist for the World Wildlife Fund and oversaw production of the report. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. So if we could just start with that number, I think the exact number is 69%. Can you put that in context for me? I mean, it sounds so high. Are the world's animals disappearing? We, we are seeing very sharp declines in the populations of animals across the globe. And this is across all continents in the globe. So it is a very sharp decline. And it yeah. means that for each population of bird or mammals, they've declined by 69%. And the, the 69% is an average of 32,000 populations measured across mm. the globe since 1970. So it's pretty, it, it is very much a, a red flag and a warning signal that our, uh, the life support system on earth is in trouble. What's driving the decline? Largely what is uh, driving the decline at this point is the um, habitat loss. So uh, destruction of habitat to produce more food and create more energy. Um, and the, and those, those uh, patterns don't seem to be decreasing, although there is hope on the horizon for sure. What's the hope? Of the, since we can understand the biggest drivers of nature loss and habitat destruction and over-harvesting, we can address those threats head-on. We don't have to uh, continue the patterns of development the way we have now. Um, food production, unsustainable diets, and food waste are really driving that habitat destruction. And uh, we have an opportunity to change the way we uh, produce the what we what we eat and how we consume food and what we waste when we when we consume our food. And so, little things that we can do every day can uh, change the direction of these population declines. But what are the biggest challenges to actually making that happen? Because this will have to be a, a global decision to try to reverse this. Yeah, the one, one of the really important things to know is that there is a once in a decade opportunity coming up in December where the governments of the world come together to make decisions right. and negotiate about what we're going to do about it. The UN Biodiversity Conference. Uh, businesses also attend these meetings to make sure that they're uh, heading in the right direction. And there will be financial commitments, uh, global target set. And so we do have, a t we, since so many are coming together to decide what to do about this crisis, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity to make sure that we can set things on the right foot and begin to bend the curve on, on the loss of nature. And this would be important, not just for uh, biodiversity, but also for climate, since the loss of biodiversity and climate change are inextricably linked. 
Rebecca Shaw, the Chief Scientist for the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up, the candidates for governor of Massachusetts squared off in a debate for the first time last night. Both Moore Healy and Jeff Deal tried to tie each other to national figures. Cloudy with a chance of rain today. It'll also be windy with temperatures in the low 70s. Tonight, a 100% chance of rain and thunderstorms. Temperatures will fall to the low 60s. Tomorrow, it might be a rainy Friday, otherwise overcast and near 70. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. In person on October 24th, hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. Now in business news, Reebok is subleasing its entire office in the seaport. That'll leave the shoemaker without any physical location in Boston. The Boston Business Journal reports the move comes five years after Reebok moved into the custom-built space. The lease for the building runs through 2030. The MBTA is holding a recruitment fair today. It's looking to fill as many as 100 jobs. T officials say employees are quitting or retiring at a faster rate than they've been able to hire new workers. Tom Way is the chief human resource officer at the MBTA. He says despite the T's recent image problems, it's a good place to work. We have had our challenges, but they're resolvable. There's no risk in coming to the authority. You know, we're not laying individuals off. You know, we are growing our organization. And uh, I think from a salary perspective, we're very competitive. Today's hiring event will be held at Boston City Hall Plaza from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The award-winning Kinfolks Barbecue is closing its restaurant in Easton. It's citing labor shortages as the reason for the closure. The main location in Totten will remain open. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. With less than a month until Massachusetts voters elect a new governor, Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal traded jabs last night in their first debate. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the two sparred over the economy, immigration, and abortion rights. Although the race for governor is between Healy and Deal, for much of last night's debate, it felt like a third candidate was on the ballot, Donald Trump. From the start, Healy sought to link Deal to the former president who remains deeply unpopular in Massachusetts. My opponent has said recently that he backs Donald Trump 100 percent of the time. He has said he wants Donald Trump to be president in 2024. He chaired his presidential campaign. He continues to play from the Trump playbook and wants to bring Trumpism to Massachusetts. 
Healy repeated that attack more than once, calling Deal extreme, dangerous, and unqualified to be the next governor. Deal called the Trump reference a distraction. He presented himself as a fiscal conservative who supports parental rights and law and order. And Deal sought to tie Healy to President Joe Biden, high inflation and rising energy prices. We're going to make sure that this debate is about Massachusetts tonight and not about national politics. Although, if we want to talk national politics, Joe Biden, the person that you supported, is leaving us right now in an economic disaster just two years into the job. Steele was an early supporter of Trump. He co-chaired Trump's 2016 campaign in Massachusetts and has pushed the former president's false claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. When asked last night if he still believes the election was stolen, he at first appeared to edge away from that unfounded claim. Obviously, Joe Biden won the election. Look at the, how bad the economy is right now. But Deal continued to claim there were irregularities in 2020 and insisted that mail-in voting makes election fraud more likely, even in Massachusetts. And Deal said a law that gives undocumented immigrants in the state access to driver's licenses automatically enrolls them to vote. In fact, the law doesn't do that. But Deal is leading a ballot question effort to repeal it. Healy, who supports the law, says it promotes public safety. You want to know who is actually driving on our roads. You want to know that they've received instruction and training through a driver's ed program. And importantly, you want to make sure that they're insured. But the sharpest clash by far came over abortion. In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to end federal abortion rights, Healy said the choice in this race is crystal clear. Massachusetts needs a governor who will protect a woman's freedom to make decisions for herself. It's as simple as that. I will. He won't. While Deal is anti-abortion, he said he would respect Massachusetts' Roe Act, which codifies abortion rights in state law. And then he shifted the argument to vaccine mandates, which he opposes. You never stood up for people who were fired because they were forced to get a vaccine if they had uh, developed natural immunity or had underlying health care conditions. That's really shameful. A lot of people lost jobs. Police officers, state troopers will never go back to work because the way they're disbarred. You know what's the... shameful is all the talk about freedom, except when it applies to women. Polls suggest Deal is running well behind Healy. It's not clear if he managed to close the margin last night, but he'll have another chance on October 20th when the two debate again. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Last night's debate was hosted by NBC Boston, Telemundo Boston, and NECN. Coming up later today at noon, it's Here and Now, and Robin Young is here in studio to fill us in on what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi there to you. And of course, the January 6th uh, committee is going to have its last hearing starting at 1 o'clock, mm -hmm. but we'll be there from 12 to 1, and we have our conversation today with Maggie Haberman. Which is a good topic oh, to man. explore before that Exactly. Um, in fact, she was here at City Space last night. She's, of course, the New York Times reporter who has so, you know, just doggedly followed President Trump from when he was a... New York builder through his campaign, through his presidency, and her new book is called Confidence Man, as she said, as in confidence that he has, but also con man. And when she was, you know, kind of backstage at City Space, our place where we have these events, she I, she was on the phone doing some reporting, and I was trying not to listen. No, I wasn't. Sure. I yeah. was really <laughs> trying to listen, and it was something about Mar-a-Lago. But, um, of course, the January 6th committee is going to be looking 
you know, at the January 6th events. And we're going to talk to her about, you know, things you may you have not heard about, about Donald Trump. And also a very disturbing story about a move across the country to train and recruit poll workers to be partisan. And in fact, in a county in Michigan, they've hired uh, somebody who broke into the Capitol on January 6th to be the one who recruits poll workers. We'll have that story for you. Wow, that is intriguing. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.50. Fewer than 2% of Latina actresses have leading movie roles, but the few who do often multitask as writers and directors, too. I always saw myself directing because I was like, oh, my God, nobody's telling these stories. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer, how these dynamic creatives are shaking up Hollywood. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Cloudy skies may give way to rain today and it'll be windy. We'll have temperatures in the low 70s. Those fall to the low 60s tonight and there's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms. Tomorrow, a cloudy and maybe rainy Friday near 70. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston at 851. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Avast, a global cybersecurity company with 435 million users who trust Avast to help take control of their safety and privacy online at avast.com. And by the Financial Times, cutting through the complexity of global politics to help readers make sense of it all at ft.com slash new agenda. The International Energy Agency is adding to the chorus of criticism aimed at the oil producers cartel OPEC Plus for cutting production by a dramatic 2 million barrels a day. The IEA says OPEC's decision could be the final nudge, tipping the world economy into recession. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. The International Energy Agency says OPEC's decision goes against efforts to navigate through the worst global energy crisis in history caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. Oil prices had been declining. In September, the agency says they fell to their lowest level of the year. But now that's reversed, and prices at the pump are rising too. The IEA says it's already seeing signs of declining oil demand, which would run counter to OPEC's own stated objective with the output cuts to reduce volatility in oil markets. Since last week's decision, OPEC has come under scathing criticism from U.S. officials. Saudi Arabia, OPEC's leader, has faced the brunt of that criticism. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. The price of crude is down 1%, 86.40 a barrel. We just received word on the latest official reading on inflation. The Consumer Price Index went up four-tenths of a percent August to September. That's more than expected, and that means prices are up 8.2 percent in a year. Stock index futures went from positive to sharply negative now on this news, with S&P futures down nearly 2 percent, and the yield on the benchmark 10-year interest rate jumped back above 4 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Insperity, providing HR support, including access to benefits and HR tech, helping businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. And by Palo Alto Networks, secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0, paloaltonetworks.com. 
Now to our series on money, politics, and whether campaign donors can be secret Santas who spend big, but voters never know it's them. Voters in Arizona next month will decide whether some of the biggest campaign spenders should have to reveal their true identities. Today, it's not just Arizona, and we start not in AZ, but in AK, Alaska. I think that's the first time I ever asked for a round of applause on Zoom, but I think it worked. Pandemic campaigning in 2020, meaning rallies not at the Capitol in Juneau, but on screens instead. Thank you for voting. The result was close, but Alaska voters did approve a limit on anonymous money influencing campaigns. If a person gives $2,000 or more, voters get to know who's paying. That's now the law in Alaska. Every year, every election, more and more money. No one knows where it comes from. Scott Kendall is an Alaska attorney now defending the measure in court. As we've been exploring this week, donors in most states can keep on the down low by giving their money to a kind of nonprofit that's allowed to do political work. Not a 501c3 like the United Way, which can't do politics, but typically a C4 that's allowed to give to campaigns. These nonprofits can have pleasant sounding names along the lines of Citizens for a Perfect Universe or something. Americans for Apple Pie and Americans for Apple Pie donates money in election and no one knows where that money came from. Polls show voters on both the left and the right indicate worry about so-called dark money. Republicans got good at it, and then in 2020, Democrats got even better at it nationally, according to a New York Times analysis. And Kendall says Alaskans seem to like their new system's focus on the bigger donors. If you're a member of the NRA, you don't give them 2000 a year. So the NRA membership they can donate money. Or labor unions, their thresholds are below that. Groups including the Alaska Free Market Coalition unsuccessfully challenged the new law in federal court, but it's now on appeal. Daniel Sir of the Liberty Justice Center of Chicago represents the challengers. He believes Alaska's rules go further than advertised, suggesting donors could get exposed if they gave, for example, to the local Chamber of Commerce. And he's worried that donors will now be less likely to speak out with their dollars if they could end up in the hot seat. Our society benefits when people have that privacy because it creates space for people to support controversial issues and have a a vibrant marketplace of ideas where all ideas are heard, including controversial ones. A robust marketplace of ideas is a key reason the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to limit corporate political contributions. But ideally, a market needs transparency in order to function properly. Jay Costa is director of a California-based group called Voters' Right to Know, which pushes for disclosure policies at the state level. Otherwise, you know, there are distortions that occur because people don't really know what they're buying. How courts decide is being watched well beyond Alaska. In 2018, voters in North Dakota passed new campaign disclosure rules, and there's the one on the ballot in Arizona next month, and maybe Oregon in 2024. 21 states allow votes on measures pushed by citizens and not necessarily referrals from elected legislatures. Patrick Llewellyn is with the Campaign Legal Center, which offers legal expertise in these matters. When legislatures won't take action themselves, it makes sense that citizens of the state would take the initiative. Last month, the president of the United States pushed to get money out of what he called the shadows. Right now, advocacy groups can run ads on issues attacking or supporting a candidate right until Election Day without disclosing who's paying for that ad. 
But two days later, a national ban on mystery money failed in the Senate. No Republican voted yes, and that was that. David Tedesco, a businessman and registered independent who's funding the ballot measure in Arizona, sees a kind of arms race. If you talk to sitting politicians in a private conversation, what you're generally going to hear from most of them is, uh, I'd like to see dark money go away, but my opponents take dark money, and I might have to take dark money. But privately, if you take care of it for us, I'd be happy to follow those rules. All of our Secret Money public influence coverage is streamable from Marketplace.org now. The series was produced by Marketplace's Alex Schroeder with Meredith Garretson and John Gordon. Our engineer is Brian Allison. Our digital team was Carrie Barber, Olga Oxman, Edward Silver, and Dylan Mietnan. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be cloudy, windy, and low 70s today. Rain and thunderstorms tonight in the low 60s. Tomorrow, rain likely in the morning, otherwise cloudy and near 70. There will also be some gusty winds. And a quick reminder, beginning at 1 today, NPR and WBUR will have live coverage of what may be the last public hearing held by the January 6th House Committee. It's expected to focus on the role former President Trump played in the attack on the Capitol. It's 64 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.